Hi, this is Nicole with Porchlight Radio. Today I want to start a three-part book with you guys. I read it the other day and couldn't put it down until it was finished. Um, it's by Herman Hess and it's called Siddhartha. Today I'm going to read part one, also titled Siddhartha. Chapter one, The Brahmin's Son. In the shade of the house, in the sunshine on the river bank by the boats, in the shade of the sallow wood and the fig tree, Siddhartha, the handsome Brahmin's son, grew up with his friend Govinda. The sun browned his slender shoulders on the river bank while bathing at the holy ablutions, at the holy sacrifices. Shadows passed across his eyes in the mango grove during play, while his mother sang, during his father's teachings when with the learned men. Siddhartha had already long taken part in the learned men's conversations, had engaged in debate with Govinda, and had practiced the art of contemplation and meditation with him. Already he knew how to pronounce Om silently, this word of words, to say it inwardly with the intake of breath, when breathing out with all his soul, his brow radiating glow of pure spirit. Already he knew how to recognize Atman within the depth of his being, indestructible, at one with the universe. There was happiness in his father's heart because of his son, who was intel intelligent and thirsty for knowledge. He saw him growing up to be a great learned man, a priest, a prince among Brahmins. There was pride in his mother's breast when she saw him walking, sitting down and rising. Siddhartha, strong, handsome, supple-limbed, greeting her with complete grace. Love stirred in the hearts of the young Brahmin's daughters when Siddhartha walked through the streets of the town, with his lofty brow, his king-like eyes, and his slim figure. Govinda, his friend, the Brahmin's son, loved him more than anybody else. He loved Siddhartha's eyes and clear voice. He loved the way he walked, his complete grace of movement. He loved everything that Siddhartha did and said, and above all, he loved his intellect, his fine ardent thoughts, his strong will, his high vocation. Govinda knew that he would not become an ordinary Brahmin, a lazy, sacrificial official, an avar a avaricious dealer in magic sayings, a conceited, worthless orator, a wicked sly priest, or just a good stupid sheep amongst a large herd. No. And he, Govinda, did not want to become any of these. Not a Brahmin like ten thousand others of their kind. He wanted to follow Siddhartha, the beloved, the magnificent. And if he ever became a god, if he ever entered the all-radiant, then Govinda wanted to follow him as his friend, his companion, his servant, his lance-bearer, his shadow. That was how everybody loved Siddhartha. He was delighted. Oh, he delighted and made everybody happy. But Siddhartha himself was not happy. Wandering along the rosy paths of the thick garden, sitting in contemplation in the bluish shade of the grove, washing his limbs in the daily bath of atonement, offering sacrifices in the depths of the shady mango wood with complete grace of manner, beloved by all, a joy to all. There was yet no joy in his own heart. Dreams and restless thoughts came flowing to him from the river, from the twinkling stars at night from the sun's melting rays. Dreams and a restlessness of the soul came to him, arising from the smoke of the sacrifices, emanating from the verses of the Rig Veda, trickling through from the teachings of the old Brahmins. Siddhartha had begun to feel the seeds of discontentment within him. He had begun to feel that the love of his father and mother, and also the love of his friend Govinda, would not always make him happy, give him peace, satisfy and suffice him. He had begun to suspect that his worthy father and his own teachers, to wise, the wise Brahmins, had already passed on to him the bulk and best of their wisdom, that they had already poured the sum total of their knowledge into his waiting vessel. And the vessel was not full. His intellect was not satisfied. His soul was not at peace. His heart was not still. The ablutions were good, but they were water. They did not wash sins away. They did not relieve the distressed heart. The sacrifices and the supplication of the gods were excellent, but were they everything? 
Did the sacrifices give happiness? And what about the gods? Was it really Prajapati who had created the world? Was it not Atman, he alone, who had created it? Were not the gods' forms created like me and you, mortal, transient? Was it therefore good and right? Was it a sensible and worthy act to offer sacrifices to the gods? To whom else should one offer sacrifices? To whom else should one pay honor? But to him, Atman, the only one. And where was Atman to be found? Where did he dwell? Where did his eternal heart beat? If not within the self, in the innermost, in the internal, which each person carried within him. But where was the self, this innermost? It was not flesh and bone, it was not thought or consciousness. That was what the wise man taught. Where then was it? To press towards the self, towards Atman, was there another way that was worth seeking? Nobody showed the way. Nobody knew it. Neither his father, nor the teachers and wise men, nor the holy songs. The Brahmins in their holy books know, knew everything. Everything. They had gone into everything. The creation of the world, the origin of speech, food, inhalation, exhalation, the arrangement of the senses, the acts of the gods. They knew a tremendous number of things. Was it, was it worth knowing? But was it worthwhile knowing all these things if they did not know the one important thing, the only important thing? Many verses of the holy books, above all the Upa, Up, Upanishads of Samaveda, spoke of this innocent thing. It is written, Your soul is the whole world. It says that when a man is asleep, he penetrates his innermost and dwells in Atman. There was wonderful wisdom in these verses. All the knowledge of the sages was told here in enchanting language, pure as honey collected by the bees. No, this tremendous amount of knowledge, collected and preserved by successive generations of wise Brahmins, cannot easily be overlooked. But where were the Brahmins, the priests, the wise men, who were successful not only having this most profound knowledge, but in experiencing it? Where were the initiated who, attaining Atman in sleep, could retain it in consciousness, in life, everywhere, in speech and in action. Siddhartha knew many worthy Brahmins, above all his father, holy, learned, of highest esteem. His father was worthy of admiration. His manner was quiet and noble. He lived a good life. His words were wise, fine and noble. Thoughts dwelt in his head. But even he who knew so much... Did he live in bliss? Was he at peace? Was he not also a seeker insatiable? Did he not go continually to the holy springs with an insatiable thirst to the sacrifices, to books, to the Brahmin's discourses? Why must he, the blameless, the blameless one, wash away his sins and endeavor to cleanse himself anew each day? Was Atman then not within him? Was not then the source within his own heart? One must find the source within one's self, one's own self. One must possess it. Everything else was seeking. A detour. Error. There were Siddhartha's thoughts. This was his thirst, his sorrow. He often repeated to himself the words from one of Chandogoya Upanishads. In truth, the name of Brahman is Satya. Indeed, he knows Indeed, he knows it, enters the heavenly world each day. It often seemed near, the heavenly world, but never had he quite reached it, never had he quenched the final thirst. And among the wise men that he knew and whose teaching he enjoyed, there was not one who had entirely reached it, the heavenly world, not one who had completely quenched the eternal thirst. Govinda, said Siddhartha to his friend, Govinda, come with me to the banyan tree. We will practice meditation. They went to the banyan tree and sat down, twenty paces apart. As he sat down ready to pronounce the Om, Siddhartha softly recited the verse, Om is the bow, the arrow is the soul. Brahman is the arrow's goal, at which one aims unflinchingly. When the customary time for the practice of meditation had passed, Govinda rose, 
It was now evening. It was time to perform the evening ablutions. He called Siddhartha by his name. He did not reply. Siddhartha sat absorbed, his eyes staring as if directed at a distant goal, the tip of his tongue showing a little between his teeth. He did not seem to be breathing. He sat thus, lost in meditation, thinking Om, his soul as the arrow directed at Brahman. Some Samanas have once passed through Siddhartha's town. Wandering ascetics, they were th there were three thin, worn-out men, neither old nor young, with dusty and bleeding shoulders, practically naked, scorched by the sun, solitary, strange, and hostile, lean jackals in the world of men. Around them hovered an atmosphere of still passion, of devastating service, of unpitying self-denial. In the evening, after the hour of contemplation, Siddhartha said to Govinda, Tomorrow morning, my friend, Siddhartha is going to join the Samanas. He is going to become a Samana. Govinda blanched as he heard these words and read the decision in his friend's determined face, undeviating as the realized arrow from the bow. Govinda realized from the first glance at his friend's face that now it was the beginning. Siddhartha was going his own way. His destiny was beginning to unfold itself, and with his destiny his own, and he became as pale as a dried banana skin. Oh, Siddhartha, he cried, will your father permit it? Siddhartha looked at him like one who had just awakened. As quick as lightning, he read Govinda's soul, read the anxiety, the resignation. We will not waste words, Govinda, he said softly. Tomorrow at daybreak, I will begin the life of the Samanas. Let us not discuss it again. Siddhartha went into the room where his father was sitting on a mat made of bast. He went up behind his father and remained standing there until his father felt his presence. Is it you, Siddhartha? The Brahmin asked, Then speak what is in your mind. Siddhartha said, With your permission, father, I have come to tell you that I wish to leave your house tomorrow and join the aesthetics. I wish to become a Samana. I trust my father will not object. The Brahmin was silent so long that the stars passed across the small window and changed their design before the silence in the room was finally broken. His son stood silent and motionless with his arms folded. The father, silent and motionless, sat on the mat, and the stars passed across the sky. Then his father said, It is not seemly for Brahmins to utter forceful and angry words, but there is displeasure in my heart. I should not like to hear you make this request a second time. The Brahmin rose slowly. Siddhartha remained silent with folded arms. Why are you waiting? asked his father. You know why, answered Siddhartha. His father left the room displeased and lay down on his bed. As an hour passed by and he could not sleep, the Brahmin rose, wandered up and down, and then left the house. He looked through the small window of the room and saw Siddhartha standing there, with his arms folded, unmoving. He could see his pale robe shimmering. His heart trembled. The father returned to his bed. As another hour passed and the Brahmin could not sleep, he rose again, walked up and down, left the house, and saw the moon had risen. He looked through the window. Siddhartha stood there and moving, his arms folded. The moon shone on his bare skin bones. Oh, shin bones. His heart troubled. The father went to bed. He returned again, hour after an hour, and again after two hours. Looked through the window and saw Siddhartha standing there in the moonlight, in the starlight, in the dark. And he came silently again, hour after hour, looked into the room and saw him standing and moving. His heart filled with anger, with anxiety, with fear, with sorrow. And then the last hour of the night before daybreak, he returned again, entered the room and saw the youth standing there. He seems tall and a stranger to him. Siddhartha, he said, why are you waiting? You know why. Will you go on standing and waiting until it is day, noon, evening? I will stand and wait. You will grow tired, Siddhartha. I will grow tired. You will fall asleep, Siddhartha. I will not fall asleep. You will die, Siddhartha. I will die. And would you rather die than obey your father? Siddhartha had always obeyed his father. So, you will give up your project? Siddhartha will do what his father tells him. The first light of the day entered the room. The Brahmin saw that Siddhartha's knees trembled slightly, but there was no trembling in Siddhartha's face. 
His eyes looked far away. Then the father realized that Siddhartha could no longer remain with him at home, that he had already left him. The father touched Siddhartha's shoulder. You will go into the forest, he said, and become a Samana. If you find bliss in the forest, come back and teach it to me. If you find disillusionment, come back, and we shall again offer sacrifices to the gods together. Now go. Kiss your mother and tell her where you are going. For me, however, it is time to go to the river and form, perform the first ablution. He dropped his hand from his son's shoulder and went out. Siddhartha swayed as he tried to walk. He controlled himself, bowed to his father, and went to his mother to do what he had been told to. As with benumbed legs, he slowly left the still-sleeping town at daybreak. A crouching shadow emerged from the last hut and joined the pilgrim. It was Govinda. You have come, said Siddhartha, and smiled. I have come, said Govinda. With the Samanas On the evening of that day, they overtook the Samanas and requested their company and allegiance. They were accepted. Siddhartha gave his clothes to a poor Brahmin on the road, and only retained his loincloth, an earth-covered, unstitched cloak. He only ate once a day, and never cooked food. He fasted fourteen days. He fasted twenty-eight days. The flesh disappeared from his legs and cheeks. Strange dreams were reflected in his enlarged eyes. The nails grew long on his thin fingers and a dry, bristly beard appeared on his chin. His glance became icy when he encountered women. His lips curled with contempt when he passed through a town of well-dressed people. He saw businessmen trading, princes going to the hunt, mourners weeping over their dead, prostitutes offering themselves, doctors attending the sick, priests deciding the day for sowing, lovers making love, mothers soothing their children, and all were not worth a passing glance. Everything lied, stank of lies. They were all illusions of sense, happiness, and beauty. All were doomed to decay. The world tasted bitter. Life was pain. Siddhartha had one single goal, to become empty. To become empty of thirst, desire, dreams, pleasure, and sorrow. To let the self die. No longer to be self. To experience the peace of an emptied heart. To experience pure thought. That was his goal. When all the self was conquered and dead, when all passions and desires were silence, then the last must awaken the innermost of being that is no longer self, the great secret. Silently, Siddhartha stood in the fierce sun's rays, filled with pain and thirst, and stood until he no longer felt pain and thirst. Silently, he stood in the rain, water dripping from his hair onto his freezing shoulders, onto his freezing hips and legs, and the aesthetic stood until his shoulders and legs no longer froze, till they were silent, Till they were still. Silently, he crouched among the thorns. Blood dripped from his smarting skin. Ulcers formed, and Siddhartha remained stiff, motionless, till no more blood flowed, till there was no more pricking, no more smarting. Siddhartha sat upright and learned to save his breath, to manage with little breathing, to hold his breath. He learned while breathing in quiet his heartbeat, learned to lessen his heartbeats until there were few and hardly any more. Instructed by the eldest of the Samanas, Siddhartha practiced self-denial and meditation according to the Samana rules. A heron flew over the bamboo wood and Siddhartha took the heron into his soul, flew over the forest and mountains, became a heron, ate fishes, suffered heron hunger, used heron language, died a heron's death. A dead jackal lay on the sandy shore, and Siddhartha's soul slipped into its corpse. He became a dead jackal, lay on the shore, swelled, stank, decayed, was dismembered by hyenas, was picked at by vultures, became a skeleton, became dust, mingled with the atmosphere, and Siddhartha's soul returned, died, decayed, turned into dust, experienced the troubled course of the life cycle. He waited with new thirst like a hunter at a chasm where the life cycle ends, where there is an end to causes, where painless eternity begins. He killed his senses, 
He killed his memory. He slipped out of his self in a thousand different forms. He was animal, carcass, stone, wood, water, and each time he reawakened. The sun or moon shone, shone. He was again self. Swung into the life cycle. Felt thirst. Conquered thirst. Felt new thirst. Siddhartha learned a great deal from the Samanas. He learned many ways of losing the self. He traveled along the path of self-denial through pain, through voluntary suffering and conquering of pain, through hunger, thirst, and fatigue. He traveled the way of self-denial through meditation, through the emptying of the mind of all images. Along these and other paths did he learn to travel. He lost his self a thousand times, and for days on end he dwelt in non-being. But although the paths took him away from self, in the end they always led back to it. Although Siddhartha fled from the self a thousand times, dwelt in nothing, dwelt in animal and stone, the return was inevitable. The hour was inevitable when he would again find himself, in sunshine or in moonlight, in shadow or in rain, and was again self, and Siddhartha again felt the torment of the onerous life cycle. At his side lived Govinda, his shadow. He traveled along the same path, made the same endeavors. They rarely conversed with each other apart from the necessities of their service and practices. Sometimes they went together through the villages in order to beg food for themselves and their teachers. What do you think, Govinda? Siddhartha asked at the beginning of one of these expeditions. Do you think we are any further? Have we reached our goal? Govinda replied, We have learned, and we are still learning. You will become a great Samana, Siddhartha. You have learned each exercise quickly. The old Samanas have often appraised you. Someday you will be a holy man, Siddhartha. Siddhartha said, It does not appear so to me, my friend. What I have so far learned from the Samanas, I could have learned more quickly and easily in every inn in a prostitute's quarter, amongst the carriers and dice players. Govinda said, Siddhartha is joking. How could you have learned meditation, holding of, holding of the breath, and insensibility towards hunger and pain with those wretches? And Siddhartha said softly, as if speaking to himself, What is meditation? What is abandonment of the body? What is fasting? What is the holding of breath? It is a flight from the self. It is a temporary escape from the torment of self. It is a temporary palliative against the pain and folly of life. The driver of oxen makes this same flight, takes this temporary drug when he drinks a few bowls of rice wine or coconut milk in the inn. He then no longer feels his self, no longer feels the pain of life. He then experiences temporary escape. Falling asleep over his bowl of rice, he finds what Siddhartha and Govinda find when they escape their bodies by long exercises and dwell in the non-self. Govinda said, You speak thus, my friend, and yet you know that Siddhartha is no driver of oxen, and a Samana is no drunkard. The drinker does indeed find escape, he does indeed find a short respite and rest, but he returns from the illusion and finds everything as it was before. He has not grown wiser, he has not gained knowledge, and he has not climbed any higher. Siddhartha answered with a smile on his face, I do not know, I have never been a drunkard. But that I, Siddhartha, only find a short respite in my exercises and meditation, and am as remote from wisdom from salvation as a child in the womb. That, Govinda, I do know. On another occasion when Siddhartha left the wood with Govinda in order to beg for food for their brothers and teachers, Siddhartha began to speak and said, Well, Govinda, are we on the right road? Are we gaining knowledge? Are we appro approaching salvation? Or are we perhaps going in circles, we who sought to escape from the cycle? Govinda said, We have learned much, Siddhartha. There still remains much to learn. We are not going in circles, we are going upwards. The path is a spiral. We have already climbed many steps. Siddhartha replied, How old do you think is our oldest Samana, our worthy teacher? Govinda said, I think the eldest would be about sixty years old. And Siddhartha said, He is sixty years old and has not attained nirvana. He will be seventy and 
eight years old, and you and I, we shall grow as old as he, and do exercises, and fast, and meditate, that we will not attain nirvana, neither he nor we. Govinda, I believe that amongst all the samanas, probably not even one will attain nirvana. We find consolations, we learn tricks, and with which we deceive ourselves, but the essential thing, the way, we do not find. Do not utter such dreadful words, Siddhartha, said Govinda. How could it be that amongst so many learned men, amongst so many Brahmins, amongst so many austere and worthy samanas, amongst so many seekers, so many devoted to the inner life, so many holy men, none will find the right way? Siddhartha, however, said in a voice which contained as much grief as mockery, in a soft, somewhat sad, somewhat jesting voice, Soon, Govinda, your friend will leave the path of the Samanas, along which he has traveled with you for so long. I suffer thirst, Govinda, and on this long Samana path my thirst has not grown less. I have always thirsted for knowledge. I have always been full of questions. Year after year I have questioned the Brahmins. Year after year I have questioned the Holy Vedas. Perhaps, Govinda, it would have been equally good, equally clever and holy, if I had questioned the rhinoceros, or the chimpanzee. I've spent a long time and have not yet finished, in order to learn this, Govinda, that one can learn nothing. There is, so I believe, in the essence of everything, something that we cannot call learning. There is, my friend, only a knowledge that is everywhere, that is Atman, that is in me, and you, and in every creature. And I am beginning to believe that this knowledge has no worse enemy than the man of knowledge, than learning. Thereupon Govinda stood still on the path, raised his hands and said, Siddhartha, do not distress your friend with such talk. Truly your words trouble me. Think what meaning would our holy prayers have, the venerableness of the Brahmins, the holiness of the Samanas, if, as you say, there is no learning. Siddhartha, what would become of everything? What would be holy on earth? What would be precious and sacred? Govinda murmured a verse to himself, a verse from one of the Upanishads. He whose reflective pure spirit sinks into Atman knows bliss inexpressible through words. Siddhartha went silent. He dwelt long in the words which Govinda had uttered. Yes, he thought standing with a bowed head. What remains from that, from all that seems holy to us? What remains? What is preserved? And he shook his head. Once, when both youths had lived with the Samanas about three years and shared their practices, they heard from many sources a rumor, a report. Someone had appeared called Gotama, the illustrious, the Buddha. He had conquered in himself sorrows of the world, and had brought us to a standstill the cycle of rebirth. He wandered through the country preaching, surrendered by, surrounded by disciples, having no possessions, homeless, without a wife, wearing the yellow cloak of an aesthetic, but with a lofty brow, a holy man, and Brahmins and princes bowed before him and became his pupils. This report, this rumor, this tale, was heard and spread here and there. The Brahmins talked about it in the town, the Samanas in the forest. The name of Gautama, the Buddha, continually reached the ears of the young men, spoken of well and ill, in praise and in scorn. Just as when a country is ravaged with the plague and a rumor arises that there is a man, a wise man, a learned man, whose words and breath are sufficient to heal the afflicted, and as the report travels across the country and everyone speaks about it, many believe and many doubt it. Many, however, immediately go on their way to seek the wise men, the benefactor. In such a manner did that rumor, that happy report of Gautama the Buddha, the wise man from the race of Sakya, travel through the country. He possessed great knowledge in the believers, he remembered his former lives. He had attained nirvana and never returned on the cycle. 
He plunged no more into the troubled stream of forms. Many wonderful and incredible things were reported about him. He had performed wonders, had conquered the devil, had spoken with the gods. His enemies and doubters, however, said that this Gotama was an idle fraud. He passed his days in high living, scorned with the sacrifices, scorned the sacrifices, was unlearned, and knew neither practices nor mortification of the flesh. The rumors of the Buddha sounded attractive. There was magic in these reports. The world was sick, life was difficult, and here there seemed new hope. Here there seemed to be a message, comforting, mild, full of fine promises. Everywhere there were rumors about the Buddha. Young men all over India listened, felt a longing and a hope, and among the Brahmin's sons in the towns and villages, every pilgrim and stranger was welcome if he brought news of him, the illustrious one, the Sakyamuni. The rumors reached the Samanas in the forest and Siddhartha and Govinda a little at a time. Every little item heavy with hope, heavy with doubt. They spoke little about it, as the eldest Samana was no friend of this rumor. He had heard that this alleged Buddha had formerly been an aesthetic and had lived in the woods, and then turned to high living and the pleasures of the world. And he held no brief for this Gautama. Excuse me. Siddhartha, Govinda once said to his friend, Today I was in the village, and a Brahmin invited me to enter his house, and in the house was the Brahmin's son from Magadha. He had seen the Buddha with his own eyes, and had heard him preach. Truly, I was filled with longing, and I thought, I wish that I had... I wish that both Siddhartha and I may live to see the day when we can hear the teachings from the lips of the Perfect One. My friend... Shall we not also go hither and hear the teachings from the lips of the Buddha? Siddhartha said, I always thought that Govinda would remain with the Samanas. I always believed it was his goal to be sixty and seventy years old and still practice the arts and exercises which the Samanas teach. But how little did I know Govinda? How little did I know what was in his heart? Now, my dear friend, he wished to strike a new path and go and hear the Buddha's teachings. Govinda said, It gives you pleasure to mock me. No matter if you do, Siddhartha, do you, also, do you not also feel a longing, a desire to hear this teaching? And did you not once say to me, I will not travel the path of the Samanas much longer? Then Siddhartha laughed, in such a way that his voice expressed a shade of sorrow and a shade of mockery. And he said, You have spoken well, Govinda. You have remembered well. But you must also remember what else I told you, that I have become distrustful of teachings and learning, and that I have little faith in words that come from us, that come to us from teachers. But, very well, my friend, I'm ready to hear that new teaching, although I believe in my heart that we have already tasted the best fruit of it. Govinda replied, I am delighted that you are, you are agreed, but tell me, how can the teachings of Gautama disclose to us its most precious fruit, fruit before we have even heard it? Siddhartha said, Let us enjoy this fruit and await further ones, Govinda. This fruit for which we are already indebted to Gautama consists in the fact that he has enticed us away from the Samanas. Whether there are still other and better fruits, let us patiently wait and see. On the same day Siddhartha informed the eldest Samana of his decision to leave him, he told the old man with the politeness and modesty fitting to young men and students. But the old man was angry that both young men wished to leave him, and he raised his voice and scolded them strongly. Govinda was taken aback, but Siddhartha put his lips to Govinda's ear and whispered, Now I will show the old man that I have learned something from him. He stood near the Samana, his mind intent. He looked into the old man's eyes and held him with his look, hypnotized him, made him mute conquered his will, commanded him silently to do as he wished. The old man became silent, his eyes glazed, his will crippled, his arms hung down, he was powerless under Siddhartha's spell. Siddhartha's thoughts conquered those of the Samana. He had to perform what they commanded, and so the old man bowed several times, gave his blessings, and stammered his wishes for a good journey. 
The young man thanked him for his good wishes, returned his bow, and departed. On the way, Govinda said, Siddhartha, you have learned more from the Samanas than I, am aw I was aware. It is difficult, very difficult, to hypnotize an old Samana. In truth, if you stayed there, you would have soon learned how to walk on water. I have no desire to walk on water, said Siddhartha. Let the old Samanas satisfy themselves with such arts. Gotama In the town of Savathi, every child knew the name of the illustrious Buddha, and every house was ready to fill the alms bowls of Gotama's silently begging disciples. Near the town was Gotama's favorite abode, the Jechavana Grove, which the rich Merton merchant, I'm going to butcher the name, Anathapindika, a great devotee of the illustrious one, had presented to him and his follow followers. The two young aesthetics in their search for Gautama's abode had been referred to this district by tales and answers to their questions, and on their arrival in Savathi, food was offered to them immediately at the first house in front of whose door they stood silently begging. They partook of food, and Siddhartha asked the lady who handed him the food, "'Good lady, we should very much like to know where the Buddha, the illustrious one, dwells, for we are two samanas from the forest, and have come to see the perfect one, and to hear his teachings.' From his own lips. The woman said, You have come to the right place, O Samanas from the forest. The illustrious one sojourns in Jatavana, in the garden of Anathapindika. You may spend the night there, pilgrims, for there is enough room for the numerous people who flock here to hear the teachings from his lips. Then Govinda rejoiced and happily said, Ah, then we have reached our goal and our journey is at an end. But tell us, mother of pilgrims, do you know the Buddha? Have you seen him with your own eyes? The woman said, I have seen the illustrious one many times. And many a day I've seen him walk through the streets, silently in a yellow cloak, and silently hold out his alms bowl at the house doors and return with his filled bowl. Govinda listened, enchanted, and wanted to ask many more questions and hear much more. But Siddhartha reminded him that it was time to go. They expressed their thanks and departed. It was hardly necessary to inquire the way, for quite a number of pilgrims and monks from Gautama's followers were on the way to Jetavana. When they arrived there at night, there were continual new arrivals. There was a stir of voices from them, requesting and obtaining shelter. The two Samanas, who were used to life in the forest, quickly and quietly found shelter and stayed there till morning. As the sun rise, they were astounded to see the large number of believers and curious people who had spent the night there. Monks in yellow robes wandered along all the paths of the magnificent grove. Here and there they sat under the trees, lost in meditation, or engaged in spirited talk. The shady gardens were like a town, swarming with bees. Most of the monks departed with their alms bowls in order to obtain food for their midday meal. He won only one of the day. Even the Buddha himself went begging in the morning. Siddhartha saw him and recognized him immediately, as if pointed out to him by a god. He saw him bearing an alms bowl, quietly leaving the place, an unassuming man in a yellow cow. Look, said Siddhartha softly to Govinda, there is the Buddha. Govinda looked attentively at the monk in the yellow cow, who could not be distinguished in any way from the hundreds of other monks, and yet Govinda soon recognized him. Yes, it was he, and they followed him and watched him. The Buddha went quietly on his way, lost in thought. His peaceful countenance was neither happy nor sad. He seemed to be smiling gently inwardly. With a secret smile not un unlike that of a healthy child, he walked along peacefully, quietly. He wore his gown and walked along exactly like the other monks, but his face and his step, his peaceful downward glance, his peaceful downward hanging hand, and every finger of his hand spoke of peace, spoke of completeness, sought nothing, imitated nothing, reflected a continuous quiet, an unfading light, an invulnerable peace. And so Gotama wandered into the town to obtain alms, and the two Samanas recognized him only by his complete peacefulness of demeanor, by the stillness of his form in which they were no, there was no seeking, no will, no counterfeit, no effort, only light and peace. Today we will hear the teachings from his own lips, said Gaminda. Siddhartha did not reply. He was very he was not very curious about the teachings teachings. He did not think they would teach him anything new. 
He, as well as Govinda, had heard the substance of the Buddha's teachings, if only from second and third hand reports. But he looked attentively at Gautama's head, at his shoulders, at his feet, at his still downward hanging hand, and it seemed to him that in every joint of every finger, Gautama, sorry, not Nokovinda, of every finger of his hand there was knowledge. They spoke, breathed, radiated truth. This man, this Buddha, was truly a holy man to, to his fingertips. Never had Siddhartha esteemed a man so much. Never had he loved a man so much. They both followed the Buddha into the town and returned in silence. They themselves intended to obtain, abstain from food that day. They saw Gautama return, saw him take his meal within the circle of disciples. What he ate would not have satisfied a bird, and saw him withdrew, withdraw to the shade of the mango tree. In the evening, however, when the heat abated, and everyone in the camp was alert and gathered together, they heard the Buddha preach. They heard his voice, and this was also perfect, quiet, and full of peace. Katama talked about suffering, the origin of suffering, the way to release from suffering. Life was pain, the world was full of suffering, but the path to the, to realize, to the, reali the release from suffering had been found. There was salvation for those who went the way of the Buddha. The illustrious one spoke in a soft but firm voice, taught the four main points, taught the Eightfold Path. Patiently, he covered the usual method of teaching, with examples and repetition. Clearly and quietly, his voice was carried to his listeners, like a light, like a star in the heavens. When the Buddha had finished, it was already night. Many pilgrims came forward and asked to be accepted in his community, and the Buddha accepted them and said, You have listened well to the teachings. Join us then and walk in bliss. Put an end to suffering. Govinda, the shy one, also stepped forward and said, I also wish to pay my allegiance to the illustrious one and his teachings. He asked to be taken into the community and was accepted. As soon as the Buddha with, had withdrawn for the night, Govinda turned to Siddhartha and said eagerly, Siddhartha, it is not for me to reproach you. We both listened to the illustri illustrious one. We have both heard his teachings. Govinda has listened to the teachings and has accepted them. But you, my dear friend, will you not also tread the path of salvation? Will you delay? Will you still wait? When he heard Govinda's words, Siddhartha awakened as if from a sleep. He looked at Govinda's face for a long time. Then he spoke softly, and there was no mockery in his voice. Govinda, my friend, you have taken the step. You have chosen your path. You have always been my friend, Govinda. You have always gone a step behind me. Often I have thought, will Govinda ever take a step without me? From his own conviction? Now you are man and have chosen your own path. May you go along it to the end, my friend. May you find salvation. Govinda, who did not yet fully understand, repeated his question impatiently. Speak, my dear friend. Say that you also cannot do other than swear allegiance to the Buddha. Siddhartha placed his hand on Govinda's shoulder. You have heard my blessing, Govinda. I repeat it. May you travel this path to the end. May you find salvation. In that moment, Govinda realized that his friend was leaving him, and he began to weep. Siddhartha, he cried. Siddhartha spoke kindly to him. Do not forget, Govinda, that you now belong to the Buddhas, the Buddha's holy men. You have renounced home and parents. You have renounced origin and property. You have renounced your own will. You have renounced friendship. That is what the teachings preach. That is the will of the illustrious one. That is what you wished for yourself. Tomorrow, Govinda, I will leave you. For a long time, the, the friends wandered through the woods. They lay down for a long time but could not sleep. Govinda pressed his friend again and again to tell him why he would not follow the Buddha's teachings, what flaw he found in them. But each time Siddhartha waved him off. Be at peace, Govinda. The illustrious one's teachings are very good. How could I find a flaw in them? Early in the morning, one of the Buddha's followers, one of the oldest monks, went through the garden and called to him all the new people who had sworn their allegiance to the teachings. In order to place upon them the yellow robe and instruct them in their first teachings and duties of, duties of their orders. Thereupon Govinda tore himself away, embraced the friend of his youth, and drew on the monk's robe. Siddhartha wandered through the grove deep in thought. There he met Gotama, the illustrious one, and as he greeted him respectfully, and the Buddha's expression was so full of goodness and peace, the young man plucked up the courage and asked the illustrious one's permission to speak to him.
Silently, the illustrious one nodded his permission. Siddhartha said, Yesterday, O illustrious one, I had the pleasure of hearing your wonderful teachings. I came from far away with my friend to hear you, and now my friend will remain with you. He has sworn allegiance to you. I, however, am continuing my pilgrimage anew. As you wish, said the illustrious one politely. My talk is perhaps too bold, continued Siddhartha. But I do not wish to leave the illustrious one without sincerely communicating to him my thoughts. Will the illustrious one hear me a little longer? Silently, the Buddha nodded his consent. Siddhartha said, O oh, illustrious one, in one thing, above all, I have admired your teachings. Have I admired your teachings? Everything is completely clear and proved. You show the world as a complete, unbroken chain, an eternal chain, linked together by cause and effect. Never has it been presented so clearly. Never has it been so irrefutably demonstrated. Surely every Brahmin's heart must beat more quickly when through your teachings he looks at the world, completely coherent, without a loophole, clear as crystal, not dependent on chance, not dependent on the gods. Whether it is good or evil, whether life is itself pain or pleasure, whether it is uncertain, that it may perhaps be this, is not important. But the unity of the world, the coherence of all events, the embracing of the big and the small from the same stream, from the same law of cause, of becoming and dying, this shines clearly from your exalted teachings, O perfect one. But according to your teachings, this unity and logical consequence of all things is broken in one place. Through small grap, there streams into the world of unity something strange, something new, something that was not there before and that cannot be demonstrated and proved. That is your doctrine of rising above the world, of salvation. With this small gap, through this small break, however, the eternal and single world law breaks down again. Forgive me if I raise this objection. Gautama had listened quietly, motionlessly, and now the perfect one spoke in his kind, polite, and clear voice. You have listened well to the teachings, O Brahman's son, and it is a credit to you that you have thought so deeply about them. You have found a flaw. Think well about it again. Let me warn you. You who are thirsty for knowledge, against the thicket of opinions and the conflict of words, opinions mean nothing. They may be beautiful or ugly, clever or foolish. Anyone can brace or reject them. The teachings which you have heard, however, is not my opinion, and its goal is not to explain the world to those who are thirsty for knowledge. Its goal is quite different. Its goal is salvation from suffering. That is what Kotama teaches, nothing else. Do not be angry with me, illustrious one, said the young man. I have not spoken to you thus to quarrel with you about words. You are right when, one, when you say that opinions mean little. But may I say one thing more? I did not doubt you for one moment. Not for one moment did I doubt that you were the Buddha, that you had reached the highest goal which so many thousands of Brahmins and Brahmin sons are striving to reach. You have done so by your own seeking, in your own way, through thought, through meditation, through learning, through knowledge, through enlightenment. You have learned nothing through teachings, and so I think, O illustrious one, that nobody finds salvation through teachings. To nobody, O illustrious one, can you communicate in words and teachings what happened to you in the hour of your enlightenment. The teachings of the enlightened Buddha embrace much. They teach much. How to live righteously, how to avoid evil. But there is one thing that this clear, worthy instruction does not contain. It does not contain the secret of what that illustrious one himself experienced. He alone among hundreds of thousands. That is what I thought and realized when I heard your teachings. That is when why I am going on my way, not to seek another and better doctrine, for I know there is none, but to leave all doctrines and all teachers and to reach my goal alone, or die. But I will often remember this day, O illustrious one, and this hour when my eyes beheld a holy man. The Buddha's eyes were lowered, his unfathomable face expressed complete equanimity. I hope you are not mistaken in your reasoning, said the illustrious one slowly. May you reach your goal, but tell me, have you seen my gathering of holy men, my many brothers who have sworn allegiance to the teachings? Do you think, O Samana from afar, that it would be better for all those, all these to relinquish the teachings and return to the life of the world and desires? That thought never occurred to me, cried Siddhartha. May they all follow the teachings. May they reach their goal. 
It is not for me to judge another's life. I must judge for myself. I must choose and reject. We Samanas seek release from the self, O illustrious one. If I were one of your followers, I fear that it would only be on the surface that I would deceive myself and that I was at peace and had attained salvation, while in truth the self would continue to live and grow, for it would have been transformed into your teachings, into my allegiance and love for you and the community of the monks. Half smiling with imperturbable rightness and friendliness, the Buddha looked steadily at the stranger and dismissed him with a hearty visible gesture. You are clever, O Samana, said the illustrious one. You know how to speak cleverly, my friend. Be on your guard against too much cleverness. The Buddha walked away, and his look and half-smile remained imprinted on Siddhartha's memory forever. I have never seen a man's look and smile sit and walk like that, he thought. I also would like to look and smile, sit and walk like that. So free, so worthy, so restrained, so candid, so childlike and mysterious. A man only looks and walks like that when he has conquered his self. I also will conquer myself. I have seen one man, one man only, thought Siddhartha, before whom I must lower my eyes. I will never lower my eyes before another man. No other teachings will attract me, since this man's teachings have not done so. The Buddha has robbed me, thought Siddhartha. He has robbed me, yet he has given me something of greater value. He has robbed me of my friend who believed in me and who now believes in him. He was my shadow and is now Gautama's shadow, but he has given to me, Siddhartha, myself. Awakening As Siddhartha left the grove in which the Buddha, the perfect one, remained, in which Govinda remained, he felt that he had lost his former life behind him in the grove. As he slowly went on his way, his head was full of this this thought. He reflected deeply until this feeling completely overwhelmed him and he reached a point where he recognized causes for to recognize for to recognize causes it seemed to him is to think and through thought alone feelings become knowledge and are not lost but become real and begin to mature siddhartha reflected deeply as he went on his way he realized that he was no longer a youth he was now a man he realized that something had left him like the old skin that a snake sheds something was no longer in him something that had accompanied him right through his youth and was a part of him. This was his desire to have teachers and to listen to their teachings. He had left the last teacher he had had met, even he, the greatest and wisest teacher, the holiest, the Buddha. He had to leave him. He could not accept his teachings. Slowly, the thinker went on his way and asked himself, what is it that you wanted to learn from teachings and teachers? And although they taught you much, what was it they could not teach you? And he thought, it was the self, the character and nature of which I wished to learn. I wanted to rid myself of the self, to conquer it, but I could not conquer it. I could only deceive it, could only fly from it, could only hide from it. Truly, nothing in the world has occupied my thoughts as much as the self, this riddle that I live, that I am one and am separated and different from everybody else, that I am Siddhartha and about nothing in the world do I know less than about myself, about Siddhartha. The thinker, slowly going on his way, suddenly stood still, gripped by this thought, and another thought immediately rose from this one. It was, the reason why I do not know anything about myself, the reason why Siddhartha has remained alien and unknown, and unknown to myself, is due to one thing, to one single thing. I was afraid of myself. I was fleeing from myself. I was seeking Brahman, Atman. I wished to destroy myself, to get away from myself, in order to find in the unknown innermost, the nucleus of all things, Atman, life, the divine, the absolute. But by doing so, I lost myself on the way. Siddhartha looked up and around him. A smile crept over his face, and a strong feeling of an awakening from a long dream spread right through his being. Immediately he walked on again quickly, like a man who knows what he has to do. Yes, he thought, breathing deeply. I will no longer try to escape from Siddhartha. I will no longer devote my thoughts to Atman and the sorrows of the world. I will no longer mutilate and destroy myself in order to find a secret behind the ruins. I will no longer study Yoga Veda, Atharvaveda, Atharvaveda, or Estheticism, or any other teachings. I will learn for myself, be my own pupil, 
I will learn for myself the secret of Siddhartha. He looked around him as if seeing the world for the first time. The world was beautiful, strange, and mysterious. Here was blue, here was yellow, here was green, sky and river, woods and mountains, all beautiful, all mysterious and enchanting. And in the midst of it, he, Siddhartha, the awakened one, on the way to himself. All this, all this yellow and blue, river and wood, passed for the first time across Siddhartha's eyes. It was no longer the magic of Mara. It was no more the veil of Maya. It was no longer meaningless and the chance diversities of the appearances of the world, despised by deep-thinking Brahmins who scorned diversity, who sought unity. River was river, and if the one and divine in Siddhartha secretly lived in blue and river, it was just the divine art and intention that there should be yellow and blue, there sky and wood, and here Siddhartha. Meaning and reality were not hidden somewhere behind things. They were in them, in all of them. How deaf and stupid I have been, he thought, walking on quickly. When anyone reads anything which he wishes to study, he does not despise the letters and punctuation marks and call them illusion, chance, and worthless shells, but he reads them. He studies them and loves them, letter by letter. But I, who wish to read the book of the world and the book of my own nature, did presume to despise the letters and signs. I called the world of appearances illusion. I called my eyes and tongue chance. Now it is over. I have awakened. I have indeed awakened and have only been born today. But as he, these thoughts passed through Siddhartha's mind, he suddenly stood still, as if a snake lay in his path. Then suddenly this was also clear to him. He who was in fact like one who had awakened or was newly born must begin his life completely afresh. When he left the Jatavana grove that morning, the grove of the illustrious one already awakened, already on the way to himself, it was his intention as it, and it seemed the natural course for him after the years of asceticism to return to his home and his father. Now, however, in the moment that he stood still as if a snake lay in his path, this thought also came to him. I am no longer what I was. I am no longer an aesthetic, no longer a priest, no longer a Brahmin. What then shall I do at home with my father? Study? Offer sacrifices? Practice meditation? All this is over for me now. Siddhartha stood still, and for a moment, an icy chill stole over him. He shivered inwardly like a small animal, like a bird or a hare, when he realized how alone he was. He had been homeless for years and had not felt like this. Now he did feel it. Previously, when in deepest meditation, he was still his father's son. He was a Brahmin of high standing, a religious man. Now he was only Siddhartha, the awakened. Otherwise, nothing else. He breathed in deeply, and for a moment he shuddered. Nobody was as alone as he. He was no nobleman belonging to any aristocracy. No artisan belonging to any guild and finding refuge in it, sharing its life and language. He was no Brahmin, sharing the life of the Brahmins. No aesthetic belonging to the Samanas, and even the most secluded hermit in the woods was not one and alone. He also belonged to a class of people. Govinda had become a monk, and thousands of monks were his brothers, wore the same gown, shared his beliefs, and spoke his language. But he, Siddhartha, where did he belong? Whose life would he share? Whose language would he speak? At that moment, when the world around him melted away, when he stood alone like a star in the heavens, he was overwhelmed by a feeling of icy despair, but he was more firmly himself than ever. That was the last shudder of his awakening, the last pains of birth. Immediately he moved on again and began to walk quickly and impatiently, no longer homewards, no longer to his father, no longer looking backwards. That, my friends, was part one of Siddhartha by Herman Hess. My apologies for any random misspeech or spelling or wording. It's difficult to read for that long. <laughs> um, I want to do part two very soon, uh, probably tomorrow, and I'll release it as well. I hope this book finds you finding yourself, choosing the path of Siddhartha and leaving all that is no longer you or serving you behind so that you can find your true self.
and befriend it and love it and learn from it. My deepest love and light, my friends. Thank you for joining me. Until next time.